welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Thank you so much. An honor to be here. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, musicians. I'll be calling you up at the end because we're going to do a little bit of worship at the end. I hope you knew that already, but if not, you know it now. Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you. As was mentioned, this is our first time in Australia, and we have been so blessed to be here. And I want to also uh, to, to reiterate what Pastor Chris and Ruth said about your entire team and the work they did yesterday. It was an extraordinary event, especially when an event is put on just a single time. When it's a, Sometimes we'll travel and we'll go to an event that's kind of already being put on, and I'm just the guest speaker. And other times, like yesterday, it's being put on for this particular event. And uh, th- th- it was extraordinary extraordinarily well done. So thank you to the whole team and thank you especially to the Browns for hosting us and making us feel so much at home. Uh, There's so many things that are similar about Australia and California. Um, Droughts, uh, floods, uh, fires, and then I think the other day you even had an earthquake here. We we might as well, if you were driving on the other side of the road, we'd be home. Uh, Everything else about it is so similar in so many wonderful ways. We are really, really grateful to be here. Speaking of home, before I I get to anything else, we want to give you a taste of our home and show you what our family uh, looks like up here. So we're going to put up there a picture of me and Shelly and uh, eventually coming up here. There we go. There we go. And those are our sons, uh, Matt and Phil, on the right, and our daughter, Veronica, on the left, our son-in-law, Sam. And the two most important people in that photo are grandkids, Connor and Abigail. Uh, so uh, Shelly finally got her redhead. None of, none of the three kids cooperated, but the first grandchild did. So we, we, got, our, we got our grandson there. So that's, that's us, and uh, we say from California to Australia, uh, thank you so much for the honor of being here with you today. Um, A little over a year ago, um, I decided I wanted to put on Twitter. I I I read a verse in in the Bible, and I thought, Twitter needs this verse. So I put it on on Twitter, and we'll put it up here for you. It's this. 2 Timothy 2.23 says, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. I put it on Twitter a little over a year ago, and the first day I put it on, it got so many likes, responses, and comments, I thought, okay, let's put it up another day and see what happens. And again, a big response, so I thought, let's do it for a week, let's do it for a month. And then as you can see there, two weeks ago, we had done it for an entire year, that was day 365, today we're on day 380 or something, I don't know what it is. Every single day, and every day I put it up, it gets more likes, comments, and retweets than anything else I put on Twitter. Just that verse with what day it is. And uh, here are some of the comments that I've received from putting this verse up every day. This is just from the last couple of weeks. And this is mostly from Christians and even from other church leaders, because given what I do, I have a lot of friends who are pastors. So most of these are actually from other pastors. Here are a couple comments that came recently. Almost every time I come on Twitter, I see some stupid argument that somehow still shocks me. And then I see your daily reminder. Genuinely, thank you. 
Another one said, was going to send an angry tweet, then I saw your daily message, so I didn't. Thanks, I think. <laughs> Here's another one. Just so you know, your constant avoid foolish arguments post reminded me to delete something. Thanks, brother. Another one. Several times I've found myself deleting instead of tweeting. That's probably a good one. Delete instead of tweet. Because I remember that I just hit the like button on this post and I don't want to be a hypocrite. Two more. I see this almost every day and I need it almost every time. And then another one. Hard, but not optional. So what is going on here that so many people are so confused and are so, uh, seem to be so upset about what's going on uh, that they're constantly tweeting it and just a reminder, hey, there's no reason to be angry. Uh, that happens. It reminds me of a story that was told to me many years ago by an older pastor who had been in World War II. He was an allied tank commander. So he started in his own tank, then he became in charge of multiple tanks. He eventually ended up uh, the rank of full colonel, reporting directly uh, to uh, George Patton. And he tells many, many stories about his time in World War II. And one of the stories was they were, they were in a particular battle, and they, had been, um, they were on one side of a ravine, and the German tanks were on the other side of the ravine. And they were both dug in, kind of behind hills, behind trees, behind rocks, and they were hiding from each other. And any time one of the German tanks would make an appearance, they'd shoot at them. Any time they moved where the German tanks would see them, they'd shoot them. <clears throat> but it went on for days and days, and for many days there would be nothing happening at all. They're just sitting and waiting for something to occur, just a standoff. And he said, one day after several days of nothing, all of a sudden I hear this boom, and it doesn't sound like the other ones. It doesn't sound like a direction that I can figure out because after days, you kind of, you hear the sound and you know which one it is. And then I heard another boom. I thought, that doesn't sound right either. And then a third and then a fourth and then it kept increasing. But it didn't sound right to him. He couldn't tell where it was coming from. But it was part of his job to keep record of every single thing that happened. So he had to say, he had to report, they shot at us or we shot at them and here was the result. But he couldn't figure out what was going on. And the only way to figure out what's going on is he had to take the lid off the tank and he had to stick his head up. So he does that and he peeks out. And as he looks across, all of the German tanks, have, instead of facing him, were facing down and into the ravine. And he thought, well, that's very interesting. But he couldn't see down into the ravine, so he had to see what they were shooting at. So he had to come even further out of the tank. And as he leans over, he looks down, and running back and forth in the ravine is a wild boar. And on both sides, the, the, the Allied tanks and the German tanks are both trying to hit this wild boar going through the ravine. And what he realizes as this is happening is they're so distracted by the wild boar, some of the German tanks are actually exposed and they don't realize it. But the Americans are so concerned with the, the wild boar, they're not paying attention to the fact that the Germans are exposed. Meanwhile, the Allied tanks are exposed. Nobody's paying attention to the battle. They're all distracted by the wild boar. At the end of the story, just so you know, the wild boar did not get hurt, so no animals were harmed in the telling of this story. <laughs> Apparently, a tank cannon are not designed to hit fast-moving small targets. I, I told that story once early on, and people, there were three or four animal lovers after who just came. They couldn't hear the rest of my entire message. It was the boar okay? Yeah, the boar was okay. Okay, nobody, nothing got hurt. So what happened here, what happened is, and the same with Twitter, we have an ability to get distracted. So today's message is simply entitled, 
distracted. It happens on Twitter. Instead of doing the things we should be, we get distracted by an argument. We run off over here. Just like it happened. There are wild boars that run through the ravines of our lives. And it's very easy to get distracted by the things that don't matter and lose focus on the things that do. So as I was thinking this through, and especially since this verse that I'd been tweeting was in 2 Timothy, I thought I wanted to find out why this particular verse is in this particular book. So I did a study of 2 Timothy. And let me walk you through some of what I've discovered. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And Timothy had been uh, stationed in Ephesus to pastor the church in Ephesus. It was a church that Paul had actually founded. We know more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament except for maybe Corinth and Jerusalem because there's so much written about the, book of, uh, of, about the church in Ephesus. You've got three chapters in the book of Acts, Acts 18, 19, and 20, three full chapters about Paul's arrival in Ephesus and what happened there. You've got the book of Ephesians, which was written to the Ephesus. You've got 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, both written to Timothy pastoring in the town of Ephesus. And the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches that the book of Revelation was sent to is the city of Ephesus. So you've got a lot, we know a lot about Ephesus. So when you piece all of those things together, the story of Ephesus roughly, and Paul and Timothy there, is roughly this. In Acts, it tells us that the apostle Paul, along with his companions, arrived at Ephesus, and they started preaching the gospel. And so many people came to faith in Christ that uh, it, it actually changed the economy of the city. See, in those days... Every bridge, every field, every house, and every city had a god of that location, a god or goddess. The goddess of Ephesus was the goddess named Diana, in some translations, Artemis, but we'll go with Diana. So Diana was the goddess of Ephesus. And in the cult of Diana, the idol of Diana had to be made of silver. That was their rule. So silversmithing was a booming business in Ephesus because if you moved to Ephesus, anytime you moved into a city, the first thing you did to be polite was to get an idol of the god of that city so that when neighbors visited, they'd say, oh, you're honoring the god or goddess of our city. It was just, it would be rude not to. That was just how they did it in those days. So everybody had to have silver idols of Ephesus and the more uh, of Diana. And the more loyal you were to the city, the, the bigger an idol you got. So silversmiths were really, really busy in Ephesus. But when Paul came and started preaching about Jesus, so many people gave their lives to follow Christ that they were melting down the silver because they weren't worshiping idols anymore. Silversmiths started going out of business. So many people came to Jesus that it affected the economy of the city to a point where one of the silversmiths got so mad at Paul, he got the other silversmiths together and they started a riot where they're all chanting in together, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians, and they tried to kill Paul and Paul had to run out of Ephesus for his life. So you've got this amazing start. Paul then goes back to Ephesus later. He spends three years in Ephesus, not just pastoring the church there, but from Ephesus starting, we don't know how many, but a lot of churches in the region around Ephesus. So Ephesus had that amazing start where there was such commitment to Christ that it actually affected the economy of the city, and then it became a church-planting hub. So you cannot get a greater sense of commitment to Christ and his mission than happened in the church of Ephesus. By the time of the book of Ephesians, things were still going strong, and it's a, a great book of instruction about how to live the Christian life. 
Several years go by, and it gets to the point of writing 1 Timothy. And by then, he's having to write to the current pastor to say, we've got a couple problems, but I think they're fixable. You can fix them. By 2 Timothy, the problems are getting severe. And then by the time of the book of Revelation, which, who, which another person wrote, John, the last book written in the New Testament, by the time of the book of Revelation, take a look at how far they had gone. They had gone from being so strong in faith that they, that they changed the uh, economics of a city to this. Here's what is said about, the, book, uh, about the, the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is less than a generation later, fewer than 40 years later. So how does a church, how, does, how do the Christians in an entire city go from so strong that they're impacting the financial base of a city and they're planting churches like crazy to within less than a generation, God says of them, you have lost your first love. How does that happen in a generation? Well, I saw that and I thought, in, in the progress of the story of Ephesus, as we see in the Bible, begins with Acts, goes to the book of Ephesians, then 1 Timothy, then 2 Timothy, then Revelation. 2 Timothy is the last book of the Bible that, was, that Paul wrote. He was an old man. He was in jail. He was maybe weeks or months from, uh, from losing his life for having shared the gospel. He was in jail in, in Rome. In fact, at the end of the book of 2 Timothy, he basically says, I'm an old man and I'm cold, so the next person who comes to visit me, please bring my coat. He was stuck in a dungeon, and he was about to be killed for his faith. And in 2 Timothy is the last thing we see before the losing of their first love. So it's, it's, it's the signal of here's the tipping point of a church just about to go into that place of losing their first love. So I thought, what an interesting thing for us to study today to be sure that we don't get in the same position ourselves. As I, as I was studying 2 Timothy, I discovered that there are four essential truths that they were being distracted from, and they are the same four essential truths that our culture wants to distract us from. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. These are the main four points today. There are four essential truths that our culture wants to distract us from, and they are this. The existence of God, the authority of Scripture, that salvation is through Jesus alone, and the commandment to share our faith. The wild boar that wants to, there are four wild boars that want to distract us, and these are the four things they want to distract us from. The wild boar wants to distract us from the, the, the idea of the existence of God, that the authority of Scripture, that salvation is through Christ alone, and the commandment to share our faith. So let's look at these one at a time. First distraction is that that wild boar wants to distract us from our understanding of the existence of God. When I ask people, what do you think is the core truth of Scripture? What do you think is the foundational truth of Scripture? Often people will guess God is love or the resurrection of Jesus. All good answers. But there is one foundational truth that all of those rest upon, and it is this. God exists. If God does not exist, then the resurrection of Jesus is a fable. If God does not exist, then you can't have someone love you who does not exist. So underneath the idea that God is love, underneath the idea of the resurrection of Jesus, underneath everything is the existence of God. And we see it all the way through Scripture. Let me walk you through Scripture to show how elemental this is. It's so elemental that we almost forget about it. It's almost an automatic thing. And it can't be something that rests in our subconscious. It has to be in our front brain. It has to be something that we understand implicitly because it is the foundation upon which everything else rests. Here's how the Bible begins with these four words. In the beginning, God. No explanation of how he got there. 
Not here's how we know God exists, just simply in the beginning, God. God doesn't have to explain himself. I don't have to explain to you why I exist because I exist. I just show up. And God is the same thing. He just shows up. Then, when God decides he wants to rescue his people and he shows up to Moses at the burning bush, he has a conversation with Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go back and free my people. And I've got this picture on my head that Moses is about to turn back and goes, oh, wait a minute, Um, one more thing. When I go back and say God sent me, they got a lot of gods in Egypt. Can you give me a name? Because they're going to ask me which god, and we don't have a name for you. That's my paraphrase, but that's kind of what happens in that conversation. And here's God's response. When Moses asks God, what's your name? God's response is this. God says to Moses, I am who I am. God basically says, my name is, I exist. So when they ask you which God sent you, you tell them the God who exists sent me. The God who actually exists. I am who I am. This is what you are saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The God who actually exists is who is sending me, them, them, me to you. You to them. That's what's happening here. Right? Then they, he goes in. God uses him to rescue the people out of 400 years of slavery. They come famously through the Red Sea. And then within just a matter of months, they are back at that very mountain again. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God one more time and gives him something you may have heard of. We call them the Ten Commandments, right? Pretty, pretty important thing. The Ten Commandments are the first thing ever written that were accepted as Scripture. So up until then, we didn't, the book of Job probably existed, but it was not yet accepted as Scripture. It, it may not have even been discovered by the Hebrews yet. But the first written words that were accepted by the Hebrew people as Scripture are the Ten Commandments. And the first words of those Ten Commandments are this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. When we recite the Ten Commandments, we often just go to that last little phrase. We shorten the first commandment to just you shall have no other gods before me. But that's not where it begins. It doesn't begin with don't worry about those other gods. It begins with I exist. So the first words ever given to us as Scripture begin with the words that mean I exist. First words of Scripture, God. First name of God, I exist. First words of scripture given to us, God exists. And then we jump ahead to the New Testament. In case you think this is just an Old Testament idea, of course it's not. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, which reads this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him, listen for this, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is one of those verses that we hear a lot as Christians, that preachers preach from a lot, and justifiably so. But almost every message that I've heard preached about either concentrates on the front half of the verse or the back half of the verse. Right? We've heard it quoted, without faith it's impossible to please God, and we kind of pause there. Or we've heard that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We teach on those two things, but we seldom teach about the central element in the middle, which is you cannot believe in a God unless you believe that God exists. You can't come to God if you don't believe he exists. That's what it all rests upon. 
Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And this understanding changes everything. You see, because God exists, we don't get to make him up. But we do get to discover him. When someone actually exists, you have to take them as they are. I exist. You may not like the fact that I'm an American, but you can't do nothing about it. <laughs> right? I am an American. That's what I am. You can just say, oh, I wish he was Aussie. I, you know, I, it sounds like a wonderful thing. Everything I've seen makes me go, that would be pretty cool. But I'm not. So you can't just go, well, I'm just going to say he's Aussie. You can say it. It doesn't change who I am, though. Right? So we can say whatever we want about God, but it doesn't change who he actually is. So if we want to know the God who actually exists, we have to discover who he is. We don't get to call the shots on it. We don't get to say, I don't like that he's that. I want him to be this. Tough. He exists. So the wonderful thing is we do get to discover who he is, but we don't get to just change the rules. That's, that's what every false religion has done. Well, I don't like the way God actually is, so let's create a God different than that. The problem is those gods don't exist. Diana of the Ephesians didn't exist. But the God who does exist, we don't get to make him up, but we do get to discover him. We do get to know him. But it has to start there. So Paul, his first time in Ephesus, it ends with this riot over Diana of the Ephesians. They had lots of gods. Why would they get upset about this new representation of this different god they'd never heard of? The reason they got accept, upset about it, aside from the financial problem, was this. When people came to faith in Christ, everything changed. See, before that, if they heard about a new religion, they'd just add a new idol to the shelf. No problem. Oh, Caesar? Caesar says he's God now? Okay, where's the Caesar idol? Oh, okay, I'll put that up on the shelf. No problem. Paul comes along and tells us about Jesus and about the God who actually exists. And when they come to know Christ and when they come to realize, oh, wait a minute, this is the God who actually exists, which means all the other ones are fakes. They didn't just add an, a Jesus idol to the shelf. There are no Jesus idols. They're not allowed. That's the second commandment. No idols. We're not allowed to do that. Instead, they got rid of all the idols. So this is where the offense is going to come in the next couple generations. It's already beginning, but with us as believers in Jesus into our culture, they will not be upset that we believe in Jesus as God. Where they're going to get upset about is that we say, because he actually exists, the other ones are fake. If you go to Ephesus and you say, no, I'm not going to have a, 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 an idol to a Diana because I don't believe Diana actually exists and I worship the God who actually exists, well, that's just rude. That's unneighborly. And that's where it's going to begin. Well, you, I mean, that's just rude. I, okay, that's your truth. I have my truth. Sorry, no. That, because God actually exists, you don't get your truth and my truth and our truth. Their truth is truth, and we get to discover what truth is, but we don't get to make up a new truth. The actual existence of God changes that. So how did that come about in Ephesus? Well, 2 Timothy tells us about how some of that was coming about. There were false teachers who were teaching a false gospel. We read about it here in 2 Timothy 3.5. They were having a form of godliness but denying its power. How do you deny the power of God? By denying the actual existence of God. Because if God actually exists, then you can't deny his power. 
if, if God actually exists, then by definition, he is all-powerful. Otherwise, anything more powerful than the God you think you have is actually God. That's, by definition, what God is. So if you're denying God's power, the only way you can deny God's power is to say, well, there are other gods and whatever God you want, and your truth is... Basically, it's the denial of the existence of God. So they had false teachers coming in and saying, well, that's okay, that's good, but that's not... And Paul says, no, if you, den if you do that, you deny his power by denying his actual existence. If God does not exist, he has no power. If God does exist, he has all power. And there's no middle ground. So if you think God has partial power or God is along with the others, you are saying there is no real God. And that is something that we as Christians cannot do. It's very popular today, and it sounds very polite to basically ask the question, well, who's God to you? That is not the right start question. That is not the right question. Here's the better question. The most important question is not who is God to you. The most important question is, who does God say God is? My opinion about God is secondary at best. Why? Because God exists. I exist. If you want to know about me, don't make up stuff about me. Ask me about me. <laughs> because I exist. If I want to know about you, I can ask others who know you, but the best way to know about you is to actually know you, because you actually exist. So because God actually exists, let's not go around asking, what do you think God is? What do you think God is? Let's ask God. Who does God say God is? And thankfully, he's given us a full library of books about that. We forget sometimes the Bible is not a single book. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful library written over a period of hundreds of years from multiple locations and a multiple authors. When you open the Bible, you are walking into a library. Multiple sources, all in agreement on many things, starting with this. The God we're talking about actually exists. So the main statement God makes about himself is not how powerful he is, not how wise he is, not even how loving he is. The first and most important statement God makes about himself is that he exists. Everything else rests on that. If God does not exist, then nothing else matters. If God does exist, then that's the only thing that matters. There's no middle ground. This is our and the Ephesians' first distraction, to convince us that we get to say who God is. That's the first point of distraction that the culture is going to try to pull us into. And we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, must resist that because we worship the God who actually exists. And because, that God, because God actually exists, we can stand, number two, on the authority of Scripture. Oh, there we go. That, almost forgot about that little statement there. The first and most important statement about God makes about himself is that he exists. Because of that, we now rest on the authority of Scripture. If God does not exist, then the Bible doesn't matter. Not any more than any other book. If God does not exist, then the Bible is just an interesting piece of fiction with actually a very strange, enigmatic, and maybe even crazy character as its center, namely this one we call God. At best, it's interesting stories with a few moral tales to it, and at worst, it's really a nasty God to make up. 
that the, but only if God does not exist. But if God does exist, or because God does exist, then it changes how we read Scripture. God exists. He gave us an understanding of himself, not just in nature, although that is important too, but in actual words that we can read on a page in this extraordinary library of ancient literature. So, what does Paul tell Timothy to remind the Ephesian church of about the authority of scriptures? Here's a couple of verses in 2 Timothy about it. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. How, how, and what are one of the ways that we show ourselves to God approved? A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. One of the ways we stand before the God who exists without shame is that we treat the Bible with the proper dignity and respect that it deserves as the message from the God who exists. Another passage, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Let's pause right there and see how important that is. One of the reasons Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, one of the reasons you can trust the Bible is because you can trust the people who gave it to you. You know those from whom you learned it. This is why, if we are in a position of leadership or teaching, why it is so important for us to live lives of character and integrity so that we can be trusted. Because how people trust the Bible will be a direct reflection of how much they trust the person who's giving it to them. And you may not think you're a leader, but if you've got kids, if you've got friends, if you've got anybody in this room who knows your name, somebody's paying attention to how you follow Jesus, and it will affect their faith. You may not like it, but you can't change it. That's the way we work. That's the way people are. So Paul says, you, one of the reasons you can trust the Bible is because look at the people who gave it to you. It's one of the reasons that I can stand on the faith of Scripture so much because all, literally all of the most important, most trustworthy people of highest integrity and character I've ever known in my life have all been strong Christians and have lived their faith well. Now, have I known people who've called themselves Christians and have not had integrity? Yes. But I know that that happens. But everybody who has integrity, everybody who's lived their life with character in front of me has done it because of Scripture. And I know the people who gave it to me. It's one of, not the only, but one of the reasons I know I can trust it. You know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me pause right there and say, you notice it doesn't say that Scriptures save you. It makes you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus saves us. The Scripture tells us about how to live that faith. So Scripture doesn't save us. Faith in Jesus saves us. But Scripture is the roadway to get there. And then that verse continues. All Scripture is God-breathed. That is exactly the same word as inspired. When we say, that, when we say the Bible is inspired, it's exactly the same word as God-breathed. That's what it means. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The goal of Scripture is to equip us to do good, to carry it out, not just to hear it and keep it to ourselves, but to hear it so that we do it. I have never seen a church fall away from their first love without denying the authority of Scripture as the first step. Not once. I don't think you can find it histor historically. Always the first step in losing our first love is to begin to undermine the authority of Scripture. 
it has to be because if because the God who exists either gave it to us or did not give it to us. And again, just like if, if God exists, then nothing else matters. And if he doesn't exist, you know, nothing matters. It's the only thing that matters. Same thing. If that God who does exist, if he gave us the Bible, then it is completely true. And if he did not, then it doesn't matter at all. So as soon as you begin to undercut the idea of the authority of Scripture, you begin to lose your first love. It happens every single time. I've never seen another case of it. And the only way that I know not to be fooled by the false teachers amongst us is to know for yourself what the Bible actually says. I'm really hard to fool from a false teacher. You know why? Because I'm 60, and for 50 of those 60 years, certainly for 45 of those 60 years, I have studied the Bible really carefully. It has been my passion in my heart. I haven't just sat in church for that amount of time, because you can sit in church a long time and not grow at all. But if you're constantly in God's word, not just memorizing a few scriptures here and there, but understanding the flow of scripture, the narrative of scripture, the main themes of scripture, that way nobody can even take a single verse out of context and fool you because you go, yeah, that verse sounds like it says that, but the flow of scripture doesn't. So let's put it in the context and, and you, you can't be fooled. So the only way to make sure you are not fooled by false teachers is to spend time in God's word yourself. And the wonderful thing is because God actually exists, he, through the Holy Spirit, can live in us and help us to understand what he's given us in his word. So we're not even alone as we do that. We have God helping us do that because he's the God who actually exists. So the authority of scriptures. The third thing we're going to be asked to be distracted from is that salvation is through Jesus alone. In fact, I think of all the biblical truths that are going to prove problematic in the coming generation or two, this is the one that's going to be at the top of the list. Here's how it played out in Ephesus. 2 Timothy 1, verses 9, 10, 12. We'll jump a little, as you can see there. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed how? Through the, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Who's the Savior? Christ Jesus, and there is no other. Continues on. This is why I am suffering as I am, the Apostle Paul said. What is why? Because I believe that he's the only Savior. The exclusivity of Jesus is the reason Paul was in jail. This is why I am suffering as I am, yet this is no excuse for shame. Like, I'm not going to turn my back on this, because I know whom I've believed. You can't convince me God doesn't exist. I've met him. I know whom I believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. You cannot unconvince someone who has met and fallen in love with Jesus. He continues on in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. That is the one act in all of the scripture that everything rests upon. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering. I am suffering, he says, because I actually believe God actually exists, his word is authoritative, and that Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore anything else is false. Even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. We know that because as he's in prison, he's writing 2 Timothy that we can now read 2,000 years later. Talk about gospel not being chained. But he says, the reason I'm suffering isn't, be, isn't even because he just simply believes in the Bible, but, but because he believes that the God who exists gave us Scripture 
And because of that, because God actually exists, and he's the one who gave us scripture, and in the Bible it says things, Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's really exclusive. And if God does not exist, then that statement by Jesus is just downright rude. Okay, Jesus, you have your truth, I have my truth. And Jesus goes, no, 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 I am the truth. Either he's crazy or he's God. Because there, when you say statements like that, there's no in-between. And Paul says, that's why I'm suffering. Not because he believed in God, not even because he believed in the Bible, not even just because he believed in Jesus, but because of what he believed about them, that Jesus is the only way. If, if the early Christians had just simply said, yeah, we're going to add Jesus to the idol shelf, no Christians would ever have been persecuted for their faith. The persecution came because they said, Jesus and only Jesus. And they tossed everything else. That has always been the change. All through church history, that has been the reason for Christian persecution. It's not because of what we believe. It's because we refuse to believe in anything else. The exclusivity of Jesus is the main sticking point. And in our culture today, in which we've raised... Uh, the word tolerance, which is a good word, which unfortunately I think has been corrupted because that is now the highest value when we as followers of Jesus say, you get to believe whatever you want. I would fight and die for your right to believe or not believe anything you want, but I don't have to agree that that's just as valid as what God says. I happen to believe, because God says so, that there are things that are true and that are not true. That is what will separate us from the rest of the culture. That is what's going to make them angry at us, because that just sounds rude. But that's going to be the primary sticking point. It already is, and it will grow. Jesus is God is actually easy to accept. Jesus is Lord is the problem. Because if we say Jesus is God, he can be a God and there can be other gods. But Jesus is Lord means over all the other ones. It means King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of Gods. And that's where the problem is going. That's where the culture is going to push back against us. But here's why we have to stand with it. Because one, it's true. And because two, for 2,000 years and counting, almost every single Christian who has suffered for their faith has not suffered for their faith because they believe God exists, not even because they believe in the authority of Scripture, not even because they believe Jesus is a way. The reason they have suffered is because they have refused to bow to any other way. And so today, today, now as we talk, there are brothers and sisters in Christ in prisons, being tortured, their lives being threatened. Today there will be lives taken of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, not simply because they believe in God, not simply because they believe in Jesus, but because they say it's only Jesus and I will not worship Jesus and another God. He is the only way. But there's going to be pushback against that. I've, I've had it in my life recently. Someone who was raised in our church, moved away for a bit, got dabbled in other kinds of religions and so on. Her, her mom died and came back and I was going to perform her mom's funeral and she came to me and we were talking through the things for the funeral and she brought a couple quotes along from other religions that she wanted me to put in and I said, I, 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 I can't do that. Well, well, why not? I said, because it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a minister, I'm a Christian and I'm only going to do Christian stuff. 
She says, oh, I'm a Christian too, but this really is, it, it, you, can, you can be a Christian and believe in this too and add this to it and add this to it. And I said, if you want to add that to it, even if you want to read it, you're going to have to do it without me in the room. I will not do the ceremony. And she was, well, why wouldn't you? I mean, I, I'm a Christian and I believe in this. And I said, here's why. Because for 2,000 years and counting, millions of Christians around the world have refused to say Jesus and that other stuff and have been tortured, jailed, and killed for it. And I will not dishonor their blood and their sacrifice by saying, oh yeah, we'll just add a little bit of non-Christian stuff to this. We'll talk about some other fake God that doesn't exist and we'll just mix it in and it'll still be fine. No, I will not dishonor their sacrifice by doing that. If you're not, in, if, now, I'm not saying you can't sing a secular song or whatever. I'm talking about actually bringing the ideas, the ideas and the quotes from foreign gods into the ceremony. That has been the sticking point for those who have given their lives for the sake of Christ. Salvation is through Jesus alone. And, again, that rests on, if God doesn't exist, well then pick whoever you want for salvation. But because God exists, and he gave us this amazing library of books that we can now trust because the God who exists gave it to us, and in that variety of books, it is very clear that there's only one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus. You see how it all, one, one piece rests upon another? You knock any of those down and it all falls? And then from that, we lead to the final one, which is the commandment to share our faith. We are going to be, we are going to be and are currently, maybe the biggest wild boar that's most represented in some of our lives is the distraction from sharing our faith. I think second to the exclusivity of salvation by Jesus alone, this is going to be the biggest sticking point in the next few generations. If you believe that God exists, and you believe that the Bible is God's word, and even if you believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, you're going to be okay if you just stay quiet about it. We only get in trouble when we open our mouths. But here's the thing. As believers in Jesus, we don't have the choice but to open our mouths. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. It's a commission. We call it the Great Commission. It's the only commandment of Jesus mentioned in all four Gospels and the book of Acts the commandment to share our faith with others. We don't have an option. In 2 Timothy, it goes this way. 2 Timothy uh, 4, verses 1 through 2. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Tell people about it. Be prepared in season and out of season. What does that mean, in season and out of season? It means be prepared to preach the word when you're asked to get up on a Sunday morning in a strange church and talk. It also means out of season when you're in line at Woolies and the person next to you goes... Where'd you just come from now? You look all dressed up on a Sunday afternoon. And you go, I just came from church. And they ask, what church? And then you tell them what church. And they go, do you really believe that stuff? That's out of season. Prepared or not prepared, ready for it or not, you better be ready for it. That's what it means there. Be prepared when you're asked to share it and you're, and, you're, and you're used to it. Be prepared when it comes to you at a surprise, when it's out of season. We need to be prepared to what? Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Take a look at those last words because it really matters. There are people out there who love that word rebuke. But it says all of it, even the rebuking, has to be done how? With great patience and careful instruction. Nobody was ever argued into being a Christian. They're loved into being a Christian. God is patient with us. We need to be patient with them. 
patience, careful instruction. Don't get distracted from that. So to look at all four of them, who is God to you is only the right question after we've asked who does God say God is. Secondly, all scriptures God breathed cannot devolve into, did God really say? Third, there are many ways to heaven must be replaced in the heart of the Christian with Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the idea that faith is a private thing, just keep it to yourself, has to change into go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. As Christians, these are not optional. But there will be wild boars running through all of our lives trying to distract us from all four. And if we can be distracted from any one of the four, we will be distracted from all of the four. They're all tied together. So why am I making such a big deal out of this? I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. I talk about this because lately I'm seeing far too many good people raised in church, raised in our church, probably even those who have been raised in this church, who are getting distracted from the main thing. And here's what's really, in addition to the fact that they're being distracted, what they're being distracted for is even more frustrating. I'm going to go down here so you can pull this out of the way and everybody come up. When somebody says, I've left the faith and I've gone over to this belief, I could have some respect for you if you were living a shallow Christian life and now you've gone over to some other belief and you're really going deep into it. For shallow for deep, that I, that I can get. But when I ask people, and I've had several of these conversations with people who've been raised in the church, why did you leave the church? Almost all of them, one of their excuses at least is something about the faith being shallow. It didn't answer my hard questions, which, by the way, is a, an indictment against us. We need to be, answer tough questions better than we do. We can't just dismiss them anymore. They, they insist on being answered, and they should be answered. And we have answers. That's the good news. I didn't get answers to my tough questions. I was just dismissed. It seems so shallow. So what are you doing now? And they'll tell me what they're doing now. And what they've done is they've traded shallow Christianity for shallow paganism. I don't believe this anymore because it didn't answer all my questions. So now I'm believing this thing over here because some weird Hollywood star is doing it. So shallow Christian faith for shallow pagan faith, I don't see the upside. If, if, your, if your Christian faith is too shallow, here's my suggestion. Go deeper. You won't find deeper in other religions, in other ways of thinking, or in just simply abandoning Jesus and thinking you're just going to do it your own way. That's not deeper. That's just another type of shallow. But if you go deep into Jesus you'll never find the bottom. The simple statements of Christ will come back to you in waves of depth and meaning and understanding and practical application that you never dreamed were possible. You will read scripture and constantly go, where did that come from? How did I not see that before? You want to go deep? You'll never get deeper than Jesus. God exists. And the Bible says God looks like Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Best news you will ever hear in your life is that God looks like Jesus. If you ever in the future hear, hey, Carl Vader's left Christianity, I'm gonna, I got a news for you. First of all, it's going to be untrue. 
But secondly, even if in some weird universe it was true, you will never hear that Carl Vader's left the Christian faith in order to become a Buddhist, in order to become a Muslim, in order to become a Mormon, in order to become any other faith. The only reason I will ever leave Christianity, and I won't, but the only logical reason I could ever understand why anybody would ever leave the Christian faith is to become an atheist. And here's why. Because if Jesus is not God, have you got a better candidate? If Jesus isn't God, there is no God. There's no other reasonable option. You gotta, have you got a better than Jesus out there to make your God? I mean, even, even non-Christians understand that. When atheists criticize Christians, they never say, oh, those Christians, they're acting too much like Jesus. Even atheists look at it and go, well, that's not very Jesus of you. They understand when we don't act like Jesus that that's a problem. So we need to clue into that. Even the atheists have it figured out. Let's stand. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.